You're listening to the micro version of the Savage Lovecast at savage.love. If you're stuck in a relationship quandary, or if you're looking for sexual harmony, All right, first things first. It's a big news story, and I know you're going to want to hear what I have to say about it. That middle school teacher and her husband, they really shouldn't have filmed themselves fucking in a classroom at the middle school where they worked. Samantha and Dylan Peer were married middle school teachers at Lake Havasu Unified Middle School in Arizona, and they couldn't quite make ends meet, as Peer pointed out in a video she posted to her YouTube channel over the weekend which you may have missed because other far less important news stories seem to have dominated multiple news cycles over the last week. Teachers in Arizona, according to Peer, are among the lowest paid teachers in the country. So, to make ends meet, to feed their family, Peer and her husband created an OnlyFans account, blocked anyone in the state of Arizona from being able to view their content, and made a little money, a little extra money. I didn't know you could block people in the state where you live from seeing your OnlyFans. Learn something new every day. But I could have told Mr. and Ms. Peer that it wouldn't work. Things have a way of getting around. And a hot middle school science teacher and her hung husband and their OnlyFans account? Yeah, that's going to get around. And it did. Somehow, a couple of kids at Lake Havasu United Middle School... In Arizona, found Chloe Carter online. That was Samantha Pierce's porn persona. And her OnlyFans account got back to administrators at her school. Pierre was suspended and then told no one would ever find out about her porn career if she resigned quietly. And so she resigned quietly. And then everyone found out because administrators at her school allegedly shared links with other teachers at the school who shared those links with their students, who then shared those links with their parents, who are now harassing the peers everywhere they go in the small town where they live. Stories like this really piss me off. Everyone watches porn. Not everyone makes it. Or, I should say, not everyone makes it for money, since almost everyone these days makes porn. If you've ever sent a dick pic or a hole pic or a tit pic or... Tits pick, plural, I guess I should say, since very few people send a pick of a single tit. Anyway, if you've ever sent dirty pics to someone you're sleeping with or someone you hope to sleep with, which is very common behavior, then congrats, you've made porn. You may have only made it for one person. You didn't set out to capture more than the tiniest slice of the market. But dick, tit, hole pics count. That's porn, folks. When a whole community turns on a couple, like community of Lake Havasa has turned on the peers, gets them fired, hounds them out of the gym, hounds them at the supermarket, harasses them wherever they go. It's transparent what's really going on here, isn't it? The good people of Lake Havasu are attacking the peers as a form of penance, overcompensating for the guilt they feel about watching porn, or in many cases, having made porn themselves. They're slapping a giant scarlet P on this couple and loudly condemning them for making porn and then going home to watch it. And I'm not saying the peers shouldn't have lost their jobs. While hoping that blocking Arizona would keep their porn career secret may have been an unrealistic expectation, 
filming one of their porn scenes at the school where they both worked after hours, no children present. That was not smart. That was perhaps disqualifyingly stupid if you want to work as a teacher. So I'm just going to go ahead and slap a scarlet what the fuck were you thinking on that choice. People should be able to make porn if they want, sell it if they want, but filming porn at your place of employment, particularly if you work at a school, that's a fireable offense. But I don't think Samantha and Dylan Peer are the only ones at Lake Havasu United Middle School who committed a fireable offense here. The peers are being harassed now by parents and former students, and their former students are middle schoolers, and their former students, minors, one and all, were reportedly given links to their porn handle, to their porn site, to their social media accounts featuring their porn by teachers and staff at Lake Havasu. Making porn in your classroom, the middle school where you work, after hours, you should lose your job. Other teachers sharing porn with students that was made in a classroom at their middle school seems just as bad, arguably worse. But the peers are the only ones who've lost their jobs so far. All right, on to what may be the second most important news story of the week. How about the midterms, baby? I got a call taking me to task for predicting a red wave, which I don't think I did, or at least I didn't do at the top of last week's show. Maybe I repeated the conventional wisdom about a coming red wave at some point, but in my heart of hearts, I was feeling optimistic about the midterms. But unlike Michael Moore, who correctly predicted that Trump would win in 2016 and semi-correctly predicted that there would be a blue wave this year, it was more blue wall, I think, than wave. Unlike Michael Moore, I didn't say so publicly. But I did say so privately to a number of friends who are all willing to testify under oath. What I told one of them, what I told my friend Tim, willing to testify under oath, was that it felt like we were finally about to get our 1994. Don't know what I'm talking about? Find an old person, ask them about the 1994 midterm elections. Bill Clinton was president, his first term. Dems expected to lose a little ground, but no one saw the size of the wave that was coming. Republicans won eight seats in the Senate, more than 50 seats in the House. Newt Gingrich, UG, contract in America. The House Speaker, a Democrat at the time, from Washington State, he lost his seat, which hadn't happened in 100 years. We were shocked, and it was an unpleasant surprise. Everything that goes around comes around, as Brett Kavanaugh said under oath once himself, and it felt to me in the run-up to the 2022 midterm elections, as I told Tim, like Republicans might finally get their 1994. Attacking abortion rights, attacking queer people, attacking democracy, backing Trump, attacking Ukraine, Republicans not only got their 1994, they earned it. Okay, so after you find an old person who can tell you a little bit more about 1994, go find a young person and thank them for voting. Gen Z turned out to vote and voted overwhelmingly for Democrats. And it doesn't sound, at least according to this one Gen Z voter and TikTok influencer, it doesn't sound like Gen Z held its nose and voted for Democrats. Gen Z was psyched. He sounds pretty psyched to vote for Democrats. Oh my goodness, the number one storyline from last night, the number one thing trending on Twitter, Gen Z. Guess who showed up to save democracy? 70% of us who voted, voted for Democrats. There was no red wave. You know why? Because of people like me. And guess what? This generation is fucking fed up. 
And better yet, 50% of us can't even fucking vote yet, and we vote for Democrats, so I promise you, get excited the next four, eight, ten years, it's gonna be a progressive wave because of people like us. Let's fucking go! I've been saying this, I wasn't lying to you, I wasn't! That's TikTok influencer Chris Mowry, and he seems, as Barack Obama once said, fired up and ready to go. And he's right, CNN reports, Democrats would have gotten crushed this election without young voters. Young voters, voters under 30, not all of them Gen Z's, some of them millennials, canceled out the votes of people over 65 and more than half of Gen Z, currently under 18. And most people over 65, well, TikTok motherfuckers. Okay, there is a 30% chance that a randomly selected young person, member of Gen Z, who can vote, who's over 18, will have voted for Republicans. So to be on the safe side, find 10 Young people, hand them seven handwritten thank you notes and let them sort out who gets one. There's a lot of ways to slice the electorate, of course. Young people, black women, people of color, working class people, lots of credit to go around. And it's got to be said, majorities of white people continue to suck. All right, before we get to the show, there is a rainbow-striped football I'd like to spike, or maybe it's a football-shaped butt plug. After all the screaming and yelling about drag queen story hours and trans people, after the concerted and sustained effort to recast out LGBT people as groomers and child molesters, hundreds of openly gay, lesbian, bi, and trans candidates were elected to office on Tuesday. According to the Victory Fund, of the 714 out LGBT candidates, 436 so far, some races are still being decided, 436 so far won their races which is a win rate well over 60%, and that is great. Out lesbians elected governor in Oregon and Massachusetts, trans people elected to state legislatures in New Hampshire and Minnesota and Montana, and Jared Polis, out gay governor of Colorado, won re-election by almost 20 points. That is a DeSantis-sized landslide trouncing his GOP opponent, and women swept the table in Michigan, Ah, it was a great week, I guess, because the counting takes so long. We got great news as the week went on, including Dems keeping control of the Senate. Just one last bit of unfinished business, of course, related to the Senate. Raphael Warnock, we've got a runoff to win. If you can spare a few bucks, kick in. Go to warnockforgeorgia.com, hit donate. Let's make Mitch McConnell cry a little more. All right, coming up on today's show on the Micro Savage Lovecast, tons of your cues, lots of my A's, and some ads. And on the Magnum edition of the Savage Lovecast that you can subscribe to at savage.love, more cues, more A's, no ads. Writer and critic of advice columns, Ben Dreyfus joins me to talk about his Substack, where he regularly rips other advice columnists to shreds. Maybe I have it coming too. You'll find out when I talk to Ben. And in Savage Love, the column this week, her girlfriend came out as asexual and things didn't go so well the next time they tried to have sex. Plus, a straight dude wants to be a feminist but doesn't want a girlfriend with hairy armpits. Can he square that smooth circle? You can find the extended Savage Love also at savage.love. If you're already a Magnum subscriber, you get all of Savage Love along with the Magnum Savage Love cast, monthly Savage Love live shows, sex and politics, and more. Subscribe now at savage.love. And uh, for Magnum subs, a special sex and politics coming out this Thursday featuring a conversation with me and Tim Miller from The Bulwark. Subscribe now to get it all. This episode of The Lovecast is brought to you by the good folks at Squarespace. They make it easy to build a beautiful website, blog, or online store. 
head on over to squarespace.com slash savage for a free trial. And when you're ready to launch, use the offer code savage to save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain. This episode is brought to you by Helix Sleep, the best mattress for your individualized comfort. Right now, my listeners get up to $200 off all mattress orders at helixsleep.com slash savage. Hi, I am a 41-year-old woman, and I am so sad to say that I have lost my libido. I never thought I would be the person to say that. I've always been super horny all the time, always in the mood. I've had multiple boyfriends say that I'm the horniest girl that they've ever dated. From the age of like... 11 to my early 20s, I masturbated at least three times a night and up to five. And then like there'd be like random days where like I would react to stress with masturbating and just like over 10 a a day, maybe 20 a day of orgasms just from um, rubbing my clit. And then in my early 20s, I went on Lexapro and it went down a bit to like okay, I'm masturbating once a day, or if I'm in a relationship, I'm having sex once a day, still like one a day orgasms. And um, I got off Lexapro. I have not been on psychological medication for a while. And now I will go weeks without it. When I'm in a relationship, it's been like once a week in the past few years. And I guess I'm just trying to either get back something or or work on just acceptance. I have uh, downloaded a whole kind of program, um, audio program for um, like with masturbation meditations. And it's like sensual. You like touch your body and you try to get things really juicy. And I'm just not into it. Maybe I'm I don't like the speaker's voice. But I've done that. I have different toys. I've tried like, oh, you know, I'm I'm in a hotel room at this point or like I'm in like, a, I don't know, sexy situation. Let me try. And this is mostly by myself. When I'm with other people, I definitely get turned on. So like when I'm with myself, I'm not turned on at all. When I'm with other people, I am turned on, but it's just not as much. So I don't know. Any suggestions? You say you went on Lexapro in your early 20s and you're now in your 40s. So you were on Lexapro, which is an antidepressant, for a very long time. Antidepressants like Lexapro can have significant sexual side effects, including tanking a person's libido. If you're taking an antidepressant, you're presumably taking it for a very good reason. You may have to prioritize your mental health over your libido uh, during a time in your life. But if you're taking an antidepressant and it's tanking your libido and that's negatively impacting your relationships or just your sense of self, you should talk to your doctor about switching your meds or adjusting your meds, taking different meds or taking a lower dose of the med you're taking if it's working or taking it on a different schedule. In a small percentage, one to 2% of cases, people go off antidepressants and their libidos don't kick back into gear, that this sexual side effect can be permanent. But if you were on Lexapro for 15 plus years and you recently went off it, it may take a little time 
for your libido to kick back into gear. Sounds like you're doing everything right to lay out the welcome mat for your libido, to create the right settings for your libido, for the world it's sir that was your libido to wind back up. You know, you're listening to erotica, you're, you know, experiencing desire when you're with other people, not masturbating so much when you're alone, but when you're with other people, there's desire. That's a sign that you should continue to get with other people to put yourself in those circumstances where your libido makes it known to you that it still exists and to be patient and give it time. A drug like Lexapro, you know, interferes with dopamine production. It, it can decrease testosterone levels or your body's ability to recognize or process testosterone. You can't, which, you know, is the hormone that makes everybody horny, men and women. You might want to get your hormone levels checked. If you haven't already, it could be an issue related to Lexapro or it could be a hormonal imbalance that is unrelated to going off your antidepressants. You might want to check with a doctor about that. But you'll have to be patient. And it may be, you know, you raise the subject of having to accept this as your new reality post-Lexapro. That is a possibility. You may never be the person masturbating five to 20 times a night that you were in your late teens and early 20s. That's a very kind of male masturbatory schedule. And a lot of men masturbate like that when they're 16, 19, 20, not so much when they're 40, maybe once a day, maybe once a week, maybe every other day. Uh, so it could just be that you're experiencing a, a drop off in, in horniness or sexual interest. That's about age as well. And that's something that everybody accepts, sometimes even has to grieve as they age. But if this is indeed caused by the Lexapro, give it a little bit more time. Your libido may revive. It may not ever be what it was when you were 18 or 20, but it may be more than it is right now. And if it doesn't kick back into gear or a high gear, and you know that being in a sexy situation with other people is the spark that your libido needs. Well, that's a sign you need to keep putting yourself in those sexy situations with other people. Hi, Dan, Nancy, and the Tech Savvy at Risk Use. I was hoping that you could help me process some of the unexpected feelings I'm having around going to a sex club for the first time last night. My husband and I had been planning this trip for a while, and we found a swingers club. We had a really amazing experience. We talked about it for a few months ahead of time before we went. We set a lot of boundaries for ourselves. We stuck to those boundaries. We kept clear heads. We met some really great people and just all around had, had an amazing time. And then today, I'm having some really dissonant feelings around it. I'm feeling really vulnerable. I'm feeling like I, I don't want to have sex Again, for a long time, I want to just wear frumpy clothing and not have anyone look at my body for a while and just kind of feeling a little, you know, mildly depressed. And I'm not sure why, and it feels really bizarre, and I'm, I'm having some trouble 
wrapping my mind around why I would feel so bad today when really the experience was incredible and fantasy fulfilling and something I've wanted to do for such a long time. And we had great consent the entire time with everything we did. We didn't have any boundaries crossed. Nothing went wrong. We left when I started feeling a little ready to go. Maybe we could have left about 10 minutes sooner. People were starting to get a little drunk at the club and I could feel that it was turning and it was time to go. So we left. But yeah, I was just hoping to hear if this is a common experience or if there's anything that would help me really process these unexpected feelings I'm having around the experience. During sex, during really great sex, your body releases a lot of endorphins, oxytocin, the happiness hormone, dopamine, all floods your system. You know what else causes your body to release a bunch of dopamine all at once? Ecstasy. And everything you describe about the day after your first crazy, hotly anticipated, really successful experience at a sex club, it sounds like someone describing the day after they took ecstasy. And, you know, the day after you take ecstasy, often people report that they feel a little antisocial, a little grumpy, a little sad, a little withdrawn. They feel sort of bummed because they're drained of all of their dopamine. And it's possible you went to this sex party and it was just so amazing and it went on for so long that the next day you were kind of feeling what people who take ecstasy sometimes feel a little dopamine deprived, a little drained, and that's okay. It's okay for you to, the day after a big, sexy, touchy party where you felt, you know, really connected to people and you really put yourself out there, you really stepped outside your comfort zone. It's okay to, the next day, feel a little discomforted. Could also be impacted by sex shame if you got out there and did things that you, you know, some part of you doesn't think people should do because you were told growing up that that's not what good people do. You can sit with that feeling too. But my hunch is that this went so well that this sex party had the effect on you that taking ecstasy can have on people at a rave or a house party. You were just drained of all your dopamine and you needed a day or two for your dopamine supplies to rise. So be good to yourself, easy with yourself, forgiving of yourself, and don't attach too much meaning to how you felt the day after that sex party. It's not a sign that you did anything wrong or that you're a terrible person. It's just a sign that, yeah, you needed to wear some frumpy clothes and curl up on the couch by yourself and not be touched for a little bit and maybe get lost in a book or a binge a show, aftercare, aftercare, like closure. Aftercare is something that we can supply for ourselves. This episode is brought to you by Squarespace, who would like to invite you to take the next step. Your project is cooking along fine. You're building a following. You're starting to sell stuff. But if you don't have a professional-looking, high-functioning website, what are you? You're nothing. That's why you should get Squarespace on board and build yourself a powerful web presence. Here are just a few features that Squarespace is dishing up. Stand out in any inbox with Squarespace email campaigns. Collect email subscribers and convert them into loyal customers. 
Start with an email template and customize it by applying your brand ingredients like site colors and logo. If your organization collects donations, you can support your cause by gathering contributions with PayPal, Apple Pay, Stripe, and Venmo. Analytics. Gain powerful insight into who's visiting your site, how they're interacting with your content, with their in-depth website analytics tools, including page views, traffic sources, time on site, most read content, audience geography, and more. Wouldn't you like to know this? There's so much more on offer at Squarespace. If you want your website to work well and look beautiful, Squarespace has you covered. Head on over to squarespace.com savage for a free trial. And when you're ready to launch, use offer code SAVAGE to save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain. That's squarespace.com SAVAGE and use the offer code SAVAGE. Hi there. I recently got married to my partner of seven years and uh, over the course of our relationship, we were very different people and it used to make me really proud that we were so different, I felt, for people that were too much like me and it never ended you know, the best. And this has been my longest lasting relationship. And I attribute a lot of that to our ability to work through differences. But that being said, despite the fact that there's been a lot of love in our relationship and a lot of sweetness, I have never really felt that drum in my chest, butterflies in my stomach that I know I felt in the past for younger loves. But still, I thought this is a part of getting older and being mature. However, ever since we've got married, I've been horribly depressed, and I can't help but feel like I've made a huge mistake. I've been Googling this online. I've been reading as many articles as I can, and fortunately, so many of them are just really religiously minded, which neither of us are. And it's just really hard for me to figure out even how common this is. You know, I get a lot of articles about um, people who are feeling blue after the wedding because it's such a big high and then they come down from it, but that's not my situation. You know, we didn't have a traditional crazy big wedding um, with tons of planning or anything. It was small and low-key and, and it was filled with love, but anyway, it's just been about four months and I just can't shake the feeling that we're just not right for each other. I just want to know how common this feeling is and at what point you need to personally evaluate whether you should leave something like this. I want to honor my commitments, but I just feel like since the pandemic began, I have been going along with my life on autopilot. And now for the first time, I feel connected to myself and to emotions I haven't accessed again in years. And I, I feel like I've made a huge mistake. The emotional impact of marrying, of marriage, can really sneak up on a person. You can fail to anticipate how formally and officially being married can change how you feel uh, about a relationship. Or uh, I think more aptly in your case, surface feelings that you were unaware of or ignoring or suppressing. There's a lot that sounds wonderful about your relationship with your spouse. It's loving, it's supportive. There are differences that you've been able to work through, hopefully some of those differences are also differences that you come to enjoy. Differences aren't always necessarily uh, about conflict or things that we have to resolve. You can let your partner be a separate individual and enjoy things that you don't enjoy. And you can be allowed to enjoy things that he doesn't enjoy or express views that he doesn't share or whatever else it might be. And that difference can help those kinds of differences so long as they aren't sources of 
conflict or you know strife or anger can enhance a relationship. As I think the differences that you allude to but don't specify, I hope, have enhanced your relationship. But it doesn't sound like this relationship was ever a grand passion. You say you never experienced with your husband the kind of thrum in the chest and butterflies that you experienced with other partners in the past. Relationships that weren't as stable or as long-lasting. If you're a longtime listener of this show, you've probably heard uh, the acronym, abbreviation, the initialism, NRE, New Relationship Energy. That thrum in the chest, those butterflies in the stomach, that giddy feeling, if you'd stayed with the people or one of the persons that you felt those things for, the odds that you would still be feeling those things seven years in, pretty low, if not non-existent. New relationship energy, uh, polyamorous people came up with that expression to describe that high that people often experience in a new relationship. And I think polyamorous people put a name to it and an initialism to it because they had to watch you know, their long-term partner have those kinds of giddy feelings about someone new in their life, feelings that their long-term partner may have had about them at the start of the relationship. And you can be jealous about that, or you can just acknowledge that that's something that a long-term relationship isn't going to make a person feel, but there are other things long-term relationships make a person feel that compensate or compete with those feelings and may have more significance because they are indeed lasting in a way that NRE is not lasting. In a long-term relationship, you can have feelings of security, intimacy. You can have a shared history. You can have touchstones. You can have that sense of family and that expectation of permanence. And I think this is the feeling that maybe marrying surfaced for you. An awareness, a sense that if this is a sexually exclusive relationship, that marrying this man now means that you will never, you will never experience those things again. That NRE, that thrum in the chest, those butterflies in the stomach, that marrying kind of precludes symbolizes or, or makes concrete, not symbolizes, the fact that that'll never be a part of your life again. And maybe that's what is causing you to feel such regret and sadness. And it doesn't have to be that way. I don't know what kind of relationship you and your husband have. I don't know if it's sexually exclusive. You know, two people can feel different ways about each other. It may be that you've never felt that thrum in the chest or butterflies in the stomach for him, but he's felt that for you or felt that in the past for you. And so having a conversation where you're brutally honest or scaldingly honest about that, you don't want to accidentally say things out loud that you can't say that would so damage his sense of your relationship or his own self-esteem that he couldn't continue in the marriage himself. But you can have a conversation. You should be able to have a conversation about what you are to each other, what you mean to each other, what you give to each other, what you have with each other, and what you don't have or can't have with each other. Not because he's failing you or you're failing him, but just because two people who've been together seven or more years, two people been together often seven or more months don't have those sorts of feelings for each other anymore or don't feel them as intensely as they once did. And if you want to have him and have that too, those sorts of feelings for someone, 
you're going to need an accommodation that makes that possible for you if you're going to stay in this relationship and have those things. Or you need to, I think, and maybe you're in the process of doing this right now, grieve those things. Grieve the fact that you won't experience those sorts of feelings for anyone else ever again because you're going to choose to stay in this marriage and stay with your husband. And even just being able to put that on the table and have your grief, not something you have to bottle up around your partner, but something that you can acknowledge uh, together and get some credit for, you know, I'm choosing you and foregoing this to be with you because I so value you and everything we are to each other. (sighs) That said, you know, listening to the sound of your voice and how profoundly it seems you miss those feelings. Ideally, I would hope that you and your partner could come to an arrangement, an arrangement that's so common for men in same-sex relationships, gay men, gay married men, that allows you to have him have everything that he means to you, everything that you have together, and occasionally have those giddy, thrum in the chest, butterflies in the stomach, NRE feelings, those fleeting NRE feelings for and with someone else. Hey everybody, I have another idea about passing the time. Let's all go back to bed. Let's all take a nap. It just seems like the best strategy at this point, or maybe that seems like the best strategy to me because I own a Helix mattress. Do you? You might wanna. Helix Sleep is a premium mattress brand that provides tailored mattresses based on your unique sleep preferences. The Helix lineup offers 14 unique mattresses, including a collection of luxury models, a mattress for big and tall sleepers, and even a mattress made just for kids. Everyone sleeps differently. That's why Helix has several different mattress models to choose from, each designed for specific sleep positions and feel preferences. They have models with memory foam layers to provide optimal pressure relief if you sleep on your side, models with a more responsive foam to cradle your body for essential support in stomach and back sleeping positions, plus enhanced cooling features to keep you from overheating at night. And if your spine needs some extra TLC, Helix has got you. Every Helix mattress has a hybrid design combining individually wrapped steel coils in the base with premium foam layers at the top. It's the perfect combination for comfort and support. I took the Helix sleep quiz with Terry and we were matched with a Midnight Luxe mattress because I wanted something that had medium firmness and Terry and I both tend to move around a lot at night, sometimes even when we're asleep. I don't even want to remember our old mattress. Good riddance to that old mattress. Not only is our new mattress, our Helix mattress, the best we've ever slept on, but the setup was fast and easy. Helix mattresses are delivered in a box straight to your door for free. Plus, Helix mattresses are American-made and come with a 10- or 15-year warranty, depending on the model. And you get to try it out for 100 nights risk-free. If you don't love it, I know you will, but if you don't, just hypothetically, if you don't, Helix will pick it up for you and give you a full refund. Helix is offering up to $200 off all mattress orders and two free pillows for our listeners. Go to helixsleep.com savage. With Helix, better sleep starts now. Let them know the Lovecast sent you. Go to helixsleep.com slash savage. Hi, Dan. I'm a 55-year-old 
married guy living in the Southwest, and I have a question regarding my daughter who's about to be 14. She is asking for a vibrator, and both her mom and I are definitely pretty open and want to support her in whatever way works for her. She's got a history of masturbation and and such that we had to deal with when she was much younger in school and such. So we know she's doing it and we're just don't want to make any bad calls. I don't want to create any bad feelings or things like that for her. I want her to be happy and strong and independent and do her, do her. Do you think that's a bad idea to get her a vibrator at 14? Ugh. Seems to me that if a kid is old enough to ask her parents to buy her a vibrator, she's old enough to steal one or swipe one from a friend's mother's nightstand or ask for a vibrating toothbrush instead. You know, you want to be considerate uh, of your daughter and her feelings. You don't want to sex shame her. It seems to me that that's a street that, you know, 13, 14 can go both ways because it does put you and your wife in an awkward position for your daughter to ask for a vibrator. All that said, I think you should go ahead and get her a vibrator. You know, we don't wrap boys' hands in duct tape from the age of, you know, 10, 12 uh, to 22. Boys are born with sex toys, with masturbatory aids, with insertion toys called their right and left hands. And they explore them and enjoy them throughout their adolescence with a lot of cultural support. You know, I mean, I don't mean support, like boys aren't allowed to masturbate in classrooms any more than your daughter when she was much younger was allowed to masturbate in classrooms. But there is this kind of winking acknowledgement that masturbating a lot is something that boys do and boys enjoy. And, you know, if they're not doing anything inappropriate, they're not masturbating in an appropriate time, inappropriate place, that they should be allowed to enjoy without being guilted or shamed about the crusty socks uh, or t-shirts on the floors of their bedrooms. Seems to me that girls should have the same access to an insertion toy if that is something that they want or need. And it is better for a young woman, a girl, to be provided with an appropriate insertion toy or vibrator, which is often used externally, Rather than, you know, stealing moms or using moms and putting moms back, which I think is, you know, more horrible to contemplate than just swiping moms or swiping the vibrator from a friend's mom or using things as insertion toys that weren't designed to be insertion toys, which can be dangerous. So, yeah, as awkward as it is, particularly in this political environment, to come down on the side of a parent acquiring a sex toy, a vibrator, or an, you know, an age-appropriate insertion toy for a teenager, for a 14-year-old, that's the side that I come down on for safety's sake. And when you do get your daughter that vibrator, I think you should also tell your daughter that this isn't something you want her sharing with friends, that you got her a vibrator. Because the last thing I think that you would want, and she should understand that this would be a problem, is for one of her friends to turn around to their parents and say, well, Marsha's mom and dad got her a vibrator. Why won't you get me a vibrator? A lot of people out there would potentially judge, shame you, and who the fuck knows? If you live in Texas or Florida right now, possibly even call the police on you if your daughter shared this widely, if she let her friends know and it got back to the friends of her parents.
Hello, Dan, Nancy, and the at-risk tech-savvy youth. I am a hetero woman in my mid-30s, and I have a partner of the same age. We've been together for five years. We communicate very well. We trust each other, and things are going pretty good. In the upcoming months, he's going to be deployed overseas for six months. And I've been toying with the idea of giving him a hall pass to, you know, fulfill his sexual needs as he has a bit of a higher sex drive than I do. I don't feel like I necessarily need a hall pass over here. Uh, I'm okay with just, you know, taking care of needs myself. But I'm wondering what kind of rules would you make sure to put in place or any tips that you have to make this experience go well. Uh, this is our first time dabbling in opening up a relationship or seeing other people. So I just, I want to hear from the mouth of an expert. What do you think about it? The first thing you need to do is get some clarity around information, around what you're going to want to know and when or whether you're ever going to want to know it. If he is deployed, if he is seeing someone else, uh, getting his needs met elsewhere temporarily, do you want to hear about it or do you want just to not know? You know, whatever happens when he's deployed happened when he was deployed and he doesn't have to ask your permission in advance or tell you about it afterwards unless you want to hear about it. If you would be more comfortable knowing what's going on, then you should put that on the table. That should be a condition. But often, you know, when people are separated because of deployments or schooling or work, knowing that their partner is fucking somebody else, rather than being a comfort, being confronted with the fact of it, can be a bit of a torment. And so you need to, I can't tell you which one of those you should choose, know or don't know, that's up to you and what you're comfortable with. There are some people out there listening who are going to probably think that if, you know, he has a hall pass, if he has your permission to do what he needs to do to get his own needs met sexually while he's deployed, that you should have the same right. Uh, not only the same right, but that you should do it as well. But if you don't want to do it, we've talked a lot about one-sided open relationships on this show. And, you know, some people eroticize the one-sided open relationship, the power imbalance in a one-sided open relationship, which is how the cuckoldress Venus, who's been a frequent guest on the show to talk about cuckolding, describes a cuckold relationship. But this isn't about, you know, power imbalances or eroticizing that, you know, he can do what you're not going to do. It's just each of you having the freedom to do what you want or need to do during this time that you're apart. And if he has a really high sex drive and going without for six months and, you know, if he's deployed to a dangerous or scary part of the world going without the stress release that sex may represent for him for that long is going to be hard for him. And going without isn't going to be hard for you if taking care of yourself over six months doesn't freak you out, the prospect of that, or upset you, or make you feel deprived if he may be getting sex elsewhere while you're not, then you can agree to that. So giving him a hall pass doesn't necessarily mean that you have to get one from him in return. It would be fair, I guess, technically on the face of it, if you also got a hall pass. But a relationship is about meeting people where they are. And if you recognize that 
he has this need and you don't share it and it would be easier for him if only he had the hall pass and that's something that you want to do and you're comfortable doing don't let anybody that you share this information with make you feel like you're obligated to fuck other people if you're giving your partner your consent your permission to go ahead and fuck other people during the six-month deployment and one other tip if he's fucking somebody else while he's away or occasionally fucking other people while he's away, he needs to knock that shit off, you know, two, three weeks before he comes home and get a full battery of STI tests right before he comes home so he doesn't bring anything home. Hey, Dan, I was wondering when in the dating process is the best time to bring up a conversation about ethical non-monogamy? I'm open to lots of different kinds of ethical non-monogamy. I'm even open to exclusivity at first, and I just know that's not something I'm interested in maintaining or will be able to maintain or want my partner to have to maintain. But I also don't want to bring it up too soon if that person is totally, if it's, if it's just not on their radar. I don't know. What do you think is the right time? I think the right time to bring up ethical non-monogamy is when the relationship has progressed from casually seeing each other, casually dating, casually hooking up to that point where you're talking about, you know, defining the relationship, where you're talking about a future and the future you imagine for yourself and the future you'd like to share with, with someone who is raising their hand and saying, essentially, pick me, pick me, pick me is your potential future long-term committed partner. If the kind of commitment that you want over the long term isn't necessarily sexually exclusive have that conversation before you make, you know, the boyfriend-girlfriend commitment. I think monogamy, in the gay community, monogamy has always been a kind of opt-in conversation. You know, we're boyfriends. Are we going to be monogamous? Those were two separate discussions. Well, not it usually was bundled up in one discussion, but they were two separate bullet points on that evening's agenda. And I think it's beneficial uh, to have that conversation in that way. Even if your expectation, if you're seeking opposite sex relationships, is that most people are going to want a sexually exclusive commitment. Most people are looking for monogamy. It should be two separate items on the agenda. Who are we to each other? Do you want to get more serious about each other? Do we want to romantically be exclusive and Sexually exclusive right now? Sure, absolutely. What is it that you want over the long term? And at that point, you can put on the table that when you project yourself, you know, five, 10 years into a relationship, even one that was by mutual agreement sexually exclusive at the start to really lay a foundation of emotional and sexual security, that five, 10 years down the road, you don't see yourself in a strictly monogamous relationship. You do see yourself not being a cheating piece of shit. You do see yourself not being with someone who is themselves a cheating piece of shit. You see yourself in an ethically non-monogamous relationship. Monogamy is one thing, and everybody kind of knows what that one thing is. Non-monogamy, the ethical variety, can be all sorts of different things. And that is why, if you're going to be in a non-monogamous, an ethically non-monogamous relationship, you got to get really good about communicating what it is you want, what it is you need, what your expectations are as you negotiate the terms and the limits and conditions and boundaries of your particular non-monogamous relationship. Recognizing, of course, and 
putting a pin in, of course, that those terms, those boundaries, those conditions can change over time. All right, before we get to this week's listener response calls, let's read while we still can some listener tweets. In response to my comments about the Powerball jackpot last week, Brian Brennan tweets, Hey, Dan, after you mentioned it a couple of times on today's Savage Lovecast, I wanted to let you know that the Powerball tickets I bought had no effect on your chances of winning. If we had the same winning numbers, it would affect how much we won, though. Hashtag statistics. To which D. Hyatt tweeted in response, Yes, this drove me nuts today. Dan, your odds of winning don't even change unless you win the jackpot. Stop normalizing. Math is hard. To which I replied on Twitter, I am math Viagra. I make math hard. To which Brian Brennan, who originated that whole thread and is also literally a math teacher, replied, I'm not sure what that makes me then because I make math not hard. Maybe I'm math whiskey. And that, that whole exchange is why I am going to miss Twitter when it goes down. And of course, since you can hear my voice, that means I did not win the $2 billion Powerball jackpot, which I definitely would have if no one else had bought a ticket because that is how lotteries work. And turning away from Twitter, I'm going to read a DM I got on Instagram from a follower reacting to a discussion that we were having on the Lovecast about what new dads should expect from their sex lives after the birth of their first child. This follower who wished to remain anonymous wrote in to say, I can't tweet this at you because the only people that follow me on Twitter are blood relatives, but I gave my husband a flashlight for Christmas right before the birth of our first child. Best gift ever for new dads. I could not agree more. All right, if you want me to read your tweet while Twitter still exists and is still barely tolerable, be sure to use the hashtag Savage Lovecast. And a big thank you to everybody who posted to any of your social media accounts about the Lovecast this week. We appreciate the way all of y'all help spread the word about the show. And now, listener response calls. Hi, Dan. This is a listener response to the recent episode with the guy that was too afraid to date the woman with the penis. Something about the response that you gave didn't really sit well with me as a trans person. I just feel like it's kind of transphobic that, I don't know, you and this listener are both in agreement that if you meet someone and like you're dating them and the only thing stopping you from actually pursuing a relationship or a sexual encounter with this person is the fact that they are trans, regardless of their genitalia. It feels a little slippery slope into kind of transphobic territory. And it really reminds me of this like super straight movement that's like happening where like straight men are like declaring that they're super straight, which means they only like sleep with women with vaginas, even though women without vaginas also exist. Like, this listener and also you, I mean, just make it gay for you, are really sounding reminiscent of this like scary-ass transphobic movement. So just a heads up that you're walking on a slippery, slippery slope there with me as a long-term listener of the podcast. At least I kind of just feel disappointed when you don't stand up for the trans community better sometimes. Hi, Dan. I'm a trans woman calling about the guy who scolded the trans woman for not having her status revealed on her dating profile, um, but then had, you know, uh, what sounded like just a legitimate genital preference. 
And I wanted to thank you for your nuance in answering that question because I feel like a lot of times people's general preferences are not taken into consideration. And if we're going to be consistent in our views on things and the trans revolution is all about you know, authenticity, then we have to also understand that other people have authentic preferences as well, even if those hurt sometimes. So thank you very much. Hi, Dan. I have a suggestion for the woman in episode 837 who gets so wet that her boyfriend uh, isn't experiencing enough friction and can't come. I'm lucky enough to be with a woman who gets super wet. And what I do is um, when she starts getting a little too wet for me to feel the friction, I, I pull out and I use that wetness to fuck her butt cheeks and rub my cock on her ass and then I go back in and maybe pull out and rub on her belly or on her hand or on her thighs and just do that a few times and it dissipates some of the wetness, some of the moisture and go in and out a few times and then, you know, you'll you'll find that the friction comes back and it feels good and it's hot too to be rubbing around on other parts of the body. And we're going to leave it there. Got a question for next week's Lovecast or something to say about something I said in this week's Lovecast? Use the Voice Memo app on your phone to record your question or your comment and email it to us at voicemail at savagelovecast.com. You can also record your question at my website, savage.love, or you can call us at 206-302-2064. Hanukkah, Christmas, Kwanzaa, Solstice, all coming up. The Magnum Savage Lovecast makes a great gift, as do GGG mugs, Savage Love t-shirts, Fuck first mugs, get your orders in now. Operators are standing by and tech-savvy at-risk youth are shackled to their desks at savage.com. Hump's Greatest Hits, our fifth and final collection of the best Hump films, is streaming one final weekend. Submissions for next year's Hump Film Festival are due in a little less than a month. We need them by December 9th. That's plenty of time to get your film shot, edited, and in. Hump Films, under five minutes. Keep them to five minutes or less. Some of our favorite films are under two minutes. The only thing you need for a great Hump Film is a wonderful, creative, sexy, engaging idea humpfilmfest.com for submission guidelines and streaming links follow me on twitter while you can at fake dan savage follow ben dreyfus on twitter at ben dreyfus and of course follow and fuck with the tech savvy at risk youth at lovecast t-s-a-r-y the savage lovecast is produced every week by nancy hartunian and me and the tech savvy at risk youth and nancy well, i'll be back at you next week with an installment of the savage lovecast thank you for